1939, the world was preparing for war. Part of the preparations in the United Kingdom was not only getting the military ready and um, conscripting men into the armed services, men and women, but also to prepare the citizens that would stay behind on the island, that they would have high morale and that they would support the war effort and not lose heart. The British Ministry of Information designed and printed three posters that they would distribute throughout the entire country to try to lift the morale of the people. The first poster was uh, released in June of 1939. 2.5 million copies of it were plastered all over England, and it said, Your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. The second poster was shortly after that, also distributed and plastered all over England again. It said, your freedom is in peril. Defend it with your might. But the third poster was kept back for the day of the most dire straits, the day where they would be in their darkest hour, and that is if the Nazis managed to overrun the island and occupy it. And at this point... um, this poster would be released. This would be the, the ultimate morale booster when they effectively lost the battle or thought that they would. And the third poster said very simply, keep calm and carry on. Now this poster, thankfully, was never needed. It was never used, uh, even during the Blitz and uh, the Luftwaffe of the, the Nazis were dropping bombs on London. They still thought things could get worse, things could get worse. And so they were keeping back this poster. And then, well, you know, the end of the story, um, the Allies won. And so England remained unoccupied by the Germans. And they never published this poster. And so it just stayed in a warehouse, all 2.5 million copies of it. But a bookstore, a secondhand bookstore owner, bought a bunch of material, printed material, on auction and found one of these posters and thought that it was... a nice collector's item, and so he went and put it in the shop window. Um, this was in the year 2000. For all those years, this poster had been really unheard of until he put it in his shop window, and the people walking by loved this little motto, keep calm and carry on, and people would start taking pictures of it and posting it online, and it, it went viral. and really went all over the world, this picture of keep calm and carry on. You can see it in the front of your bullets in there. That's what it looked like with the little, the official seal of um, the queen. Keep calm and carry on. And of course, a lot of parodies emerged. I'm sure you've seen some of those in t-shirts like uh, keep calm and carry on shopping or keep calm and carry a gun. Keep calm and eat a cupcake. Keep calm and fake a British accent. (laughs) Or despite the trivialization of this idea, the sentiment, it really is a very powerful message during a time of intense stress. Nobody ever makes good decisions when they're panicking. And one of the best things that you can be told when you're in a time of stress is to just keep calm, carry on doing whatever's the next right thing for you to do, which is exactly why God included a letter with this good advice in it to his people. And this is the letter we're going to be studying for the next many, many moons. Um, first Peter. So turn in your Bibles to First Peter. Peter wrote two letters. That's why we have the first and the second. Um, this is after all of Paul's letters. 
you have the writer of Hebrews, you have James, you've got Peter and his two letters. Now, this is a, a letter I know our ladies have studied in some depth in the ladies' Bible study, um, and they were talking about how encouraging it was for them, and I hope that this will be encouraging for us too. It's a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote that was to a particular group of Christians that had been scattered. These are Gentile believers, so not Jewish Christians, but um, Greek Christians, Roman Christians, these Gentiles who had become believers and were scattered in these various regions of a part of the world that we now call Turkey. So it was Asia Minor at their time. Um, and he gives them this epistle. It's sometimes called the Epistle of Living Hope because it breathes a spirit of undaunted courage in a time of trial. It is an essential companion for those of us who are aliens and strangers in, in a world. That This is like a travel guide for us. One commentator, Edmund Hebert, describes it as preeminently an epistle of triumphant faith amid suffering, which exultantly proclaims the Christ-centered hope of the believer in the midst of an unbelieving and antagonistic world. That describes us. We live in an unbelieving and antagonistic world, and yet we can have a Christ-centered hope. This is a guidebook that includes social guidance. It's going to give us warnings and tips and instructions and inspiration. The relevance of its message and the beauty of its style has caused uh, commentators to say this is really one of the most precious books that we have these days for the situation that we're in. One commentator says, one of the most beautiful writings in the New Testament, which has never lost its winsome appeal to the human heart. Edward Selwyn called it a microcosm of Christian faith and duty. If you just had one little letter on how to live the Christian life in the world we live in today, this is the letter you could use. Von Sodden regarded it as, quote, one of the most precious monuments of Christianity, a jewel of the New Testament. So without further ado, let's read all of 1 Peter. No, we're going to read just the first couple of verses. But I, I, I do want you to be reading this epistle in your own time in the weeks ahead so that it becomes part of who you are. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the knowledge, foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this morning, we're only going to get as far as the first verse because this is an introductory message. We're going to look at three introductory thoughts as we begin our adventure. I want you to think of First Peter as a travel guide that you have with you on an adventure that we call life. And we're going to think through these three introductory thoughts. We're going to think of the writer of this epistle, the recipients of the epistle, and the reason for the epistle. So firstly, the writer. First Peter 1, verse 1, Peter. I love how letters start with the person's name. I mean, now if somebody sends you like a five-page letter, what's the first thing you do when you get it? You look, you look at the, the bottom of it, like after all of it. Who wrote this before I even start reading it? Here they just tell you up front, it's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a very familiar character for anybody who's familiar with the New Testament. He is the likable, impulsive, passionate, fisherman-turned-preacher. 
His name appears 160 times in the, the Gospels, which in frequency, second only to Jesus Christ himself. He is the brother of Andrew. He is the son of Jonah. He was a disciple of John the Baptist. And he was by trade a fisherman, friends with uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they ran a fishing franchise or whatever you'd like to call it together. His name, Peter, is what we call him. It comes from the Greek name Petros, which is actually not what he was called. Jesus called him Cephas, or Kephas in Aramaic, which means rock. And so when the Greek people wrote about him or spoke to him, they would call him Petros, which means rock. And so that's why we call him Peter, because it comes from that. But if you think about it, the other names in Scripture... Um, no matter what language they're in, it's some sort of transliteration of those names. So Andrew in Greek is Andrea, and in um, uh, Aramaic would be something that sounds like Andreas, and in English it's Andrew, it all sounds the same. But when you get to Peter's name, it changes, the whole name changes from Cephas to Peter. So actually, if he were around today, we would call him Rocky. That's what his name would be. Whatever language you're in, you call him a rock. That's what it meant. But we, we call him Peter from, from the Greek. But you could, I mean, I, I, I don't know. If I were compiling the New Testament, I would have called it first and second Rocky, right? I mean, <laughs> have the eye of the tiger playing every time I read it. Because it is kind of like an overcoming underdog kind of feel in these epistles. But anyway, we're going to call him Peter because that's what people call him. Um, now, what's significant about the name Peter, or Rock, is that it wasn't his name. It was his nickname. His name was Simon, Simon Bar-Jonah. But this was a nickname that was attributed to him by Christ himself. So if Jesus was here today and knew you, what would he call you? What would his nickname, if he summed you up? Jesus liked nicknames. You see this throughout the New Testament. He called James and John the sons of thunder because of their thundering personality. He called Herod that fox. Um, he called James, apparently, because there were two James uh, among the disciples, the smaller one he called James the Lesser. That's his name, you know, or little James. Um, Thomas he called the twin. And Simon he called Rock. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he gets this name. Jesus says to, to him, I tell you, you are Peter. You are Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so Jesus is using a pun here. He says, I'm giving you the name Rocky, because on this, this foundation, this, this uh, bedrock, I'm going to build my church. And so there's a metaphor. Church is like a building, and you need a foundation. And the metaphor here is, Peter, you're like the foundation, and I'm going to build this spiritual building on you, your confession, your obedience to me, your leadership of the 12 apostles. They all look to him as the leader. Um, they, uh, there's four times the apostles are mentioned in a list. Every time they're mentioned, Peter's name is first. Um, they look to him as their leader, as their spokesperson. And so what's interesting about Peter is, He's, he's a very rounded character. I mean, he's a very real person, and so he has highs and he has lows. But Jesus, early on in his ministry, names Peter, the rock, as a nickname that he will grow into. Because we see him not acting like a rock. 
many, many times. But he eventually becomes this, this rock, this anchor for the other apostles as they spread the gospel and plant churches uh, all over the known world. And so it reminds me of Arl Hirschheiser, who was uh, um, a short, skinny baseball player who was kind of timid and lacked the aggressiveness needed for professional sports. And, and he was playing so badly one day, the coach stormed out at him and gave him a nickname in front of everybody after kind of tearing strips of him. And he called him Bulldog. That's your new name. Your na and it was kind of a parody because the guy was anything but a bulldog. Um, but it turns out that people all started calling him Bulldog. And it, it made him more and more aggressive. It made him uh, one of the better pitchers of all time in the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. And he was called Bulldog, right? And that's what's happening here. This is like Jesus saying to Simon, the one who's n not a great leader. You know, he's, he's not really firm. He's not really stable. He keeps fluctuating he's changing his mind and so jesus says to him no you're the rock you're the stable one that doesn't fluctuate and the other disciples are like really i don't know if i would have gone with rock for peter but i guess that's what we're calling him now and he becomes a steady unflinching example even under intense persecution uh, you think of martin luther king the, the reverend dr martin luther king jr um, I read a biography of his once where he said, growing up, he felt the weight of his name weighing upon him. And uh, he's named after Martin Luther, this revolutionary figure that defied the Pope and, and started the Reformation and, and all of Protestantism, really, because he was willing to stand up to authority. And uh, Martin Luther King Jr. grows up with that type of expectation. And so that's the type of leader that the civil rights movement needed. Somebody who was willing to stand up to the authority and do the next right thing. So in 1 Peter 1, we hear the very first word, Peter. Peter embraced this name. He loved this name that Jesus had given him. And he describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, an apostle is one that is officially commissioned and sent by Christ on a mission. Everybody who writes the New Testament is an apostle or an associate of an apostle. So, for example, Mark is not an apostle, but he wrote under the guidance of Peter. So, really, the gospel of Mark is the gospel of Peter, but Mark was the one that wrote it. Um, Luke is not an apostle, but he is under the guidance of Paul. So, the whole New Testament comes from these apostles um, and, and their authority. Now, to be an apostle, you have to have three criteria, because there's kind of a debate these days of whether or not there are still apostles. I mean, there's not really a debate. There's people who believe it's true, um, and they're wrong. And uh, I've told you about the guy I sat next to on a plane once, and we were talking, we were both started trying to evangelize each other and realized, oh, wait, we're both Christians. And in fact, we're both pastors, and so we exchanged business cards, and his business card said that he was an apostle. So I was like, oh, I need to get that on my business card. Uh, because technically all Christians are sent by Christ. So we are all apostles. And in the New Testament, you see the word used that way. Barnabas is called an apostle, for, for example. Um, uh, anyone who is sent. Uh, if we wanted to use the word apostle in a biblical way today, you could say any short-term missionary or even long-term missionary that your church sends out is an apostle. But we don't use that because it gets confusing. Because then people think, oh, you're saying you're, you're one of the apostles. So they were only t these, you know, the 12 that Jesus chose, Judas dies, he's replaced by Matthias, Paul comes, and when Paul comes on the scene, he calls himself the, the last of the apostles, you know, the, the one untimely born. Um, you know how sometimes people have, you know, 
12 kids and then there's 20 years and then they have one more kid. <laughs> In South Africa, we call that the lot lamiki, the little late lamb. Um, well, the, Paul, he called himself that, the, the untimely born one, the lot lamiki, the one that was born after all of the others. And, and then there was no one after that, you know. Usually, if you do have one of those lot lamikis, you stop. Um, and so that's what happened. Jesus had this one more apostle and then said, no. So Peter is one of the original. He's one of the 12. He's one of the called. And to be one of the apostles, you had to have three criteria. One is that you had to be personally commissioned by Jesus Christ. Two is that you had to have seen, with your own eyes, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You had to have seen the resurrected Christ. Um, and you had to have, and this is a particularly difficult one to fake, supernatural powers. So at some point you had to have done a miracle to prove that you were an apostle. So that limits it way down to the twelve, and Paul. Now, Peter, of course, met these qualifications. As I said, he's widely regarded as the spokesman of the twelve. And we see Peter clash with, uh, Peter and Paul clash somewhat, as I read earlier in Galatians 2. Paul refers to Peter as one of the pillars of the New Testament church, one of those that seemed influential. Paul's kind of snooty about it. He says, remember, he puts in brackets there, you know, whether they're influential or not, I don't care. God doesn't show partiality. But anyway, they seem to be the influential ones. Yeah, he was one of the pillars. And, um, and Paul knew him. Now, another snippet that we know about Peter is that he was married. We don't know about all of the apostles, but we know for certain Peter was married. Um, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, it says, When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Remember that in Matthew 8, where Jesus cures Peter's mother-in-law. What does it mean if you have a mother-in-law? Nobody wants a mother-in-law without at least having a wife, right? <laughs> the mother-in-law comes with the wife. If you don't have a wife, you don't have a mother-in-law. So we know that he has a wife, at least from that verse. But also, um, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, I know in the ladies' Bible study they've been doing this chapter lately, one of the arguments Paul uses of why he should be allowed... Um, to have a family and be supported financially by the ministry is because why is it okay for Peter? And he says um, in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brother of our Lord and Cephas? And he specifically mentions him because he was one to known to have a wife even when he was one of Christ's disciples. So, Peter is the apostle that most people can identify with most closely. It, also because we see most about him, but because he has the highest spiritual highs and the lowest spiritual lows, and sometimes within minutes of each other, just like us. Um, MacArthur, John MacArthur says this, he's the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. <laughs> he's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's got the foot-shaped mouth. He was eager, aggressive, bold, outspoken, with a habit of revving his mouth while his brain was in neutral. <laughs> I love that. And you do see that, you know, like on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's the one, oh, this is fantastic, Lord. Let's build tents. Let's stay here forever. And Jesus just kind of ignores him. Um, it's like, what are you saying? Um, and we see the contrast between his ups and downs happen right next to each other often. In Matthew four eighteen, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately 
they left their nets and followed him. This was Peter. This was Peter who was expecting the Messiah. He was a disciple of John the Baptist. John had identified Jesus as the Messiah. When Jesus says, follow me, he leaves his livelihood, turns his back on his career, and becomes a full-time seminary student um, and just follows Jesus. But when Jesus died, and before the resurrection, well, he, he dies not before the resurrection, but before um, Jesus starts appearing to them regularly, Peter doesn't know what to do. He kind of flounders, and so he goes back to his old career. After everything that he'd been taught, after three years of discipleship under Jesus, he just goes a few days without Jesus being around him, and he's like, you know what, I'm going back to fishing. Um, and this is in John 21, verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, okay, well, we'll go with you. And they went out, they got in the boat, and they caught nothing. And that's where Jesus comes and does the miracle that makes him realize, oh, wait, we need to stop fishing and follow Jesus. Um, again, Matthew 14, 28 um, the disciples are in a boat, there's a storm, they're all terrified, they see this ghost-like apparition walking on the water, and it is Peter with this great faith who says, this is the Lord, and he says to the Lord, if you, if you call me, I'll come out to you, and Jesus says, come, and so he gets out of the boat, and he walks on water. Can you imagine the faith that that takes? But then just a few moments later, he looks down and forgets Christ, and his faith wavers, and he starts sinking, and he needs to be re rescued by Jesus. He panics. In Matthew 16, people are taking guesses as to who Jesus is, and it's Peter that says, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, this massive spiritual high, this great confession that Jesus says, it's not flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. But then just a few moments later, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things and be killed. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter was rebuking Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. This is just a few moments after he declares that Jesus is the Christ. In Gethsemane, Jesus says to him, could you not even watch with me for one hour? You could even stay awake for one hour with Jesus. But just a few minutes later, when people come armed to the teeth to attack Jesus, he grabs a sword and swings at this guy and chops Malchus's ear off. He's willing to fight dozens of armed people. He's willing to, to die for Christ. Just a few minutes after not even being able to stay awake. And then just a few minutes after that, later that night, he, well, he abandons Jesus right there in the garden, runs away, and then denies him three times. Oh, I didn't even know the man. So you've got this guy who's like this paragon of virtue and this complete jellyfish of a loser. Minutes apart. Sound familiar? Yeah. This really is why we can identify with this man. He's so passionate that you know what's going on. But this is going on in all Christians. The other, it's not like the other disciples were just these, you know, this steady hand. You know? It's like, no, they also went through this, but they don't articulate it. At least he's, he, always, he wears his heart on his sleeve. Like, you know where he's at. And so we know what this is like, too. And as I said in Galatians 2, Paul says... 
in verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was guilty of hypocrisy. The rest of the Jews also acted hypocritically along with him, even Barnabas. Why? Because he had been eating with the Gentiles because he knew the gospel said that there's no Jew and Gentile, but when these fundamentalist Jews of the circumcision party came, ones who said, no, everyone who gets saved needs to become Jewish in the, in the cultural aspects as well, then Peter went and sat with them. He was like, yeah, I wouldn't eat, the, I won't sit at the Gentile table. So Paul calls him out. I mean, I don't know if Paul's doing the right thing here or not, but calls him out publicly. Like, what are you doing here? Why? Because he was guilty. And, and, and yet you see, Peter... He's denying Christ three times, but then at the end of his ministry, Jesus restores him and asks him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And how many times does Jesus ask him? Three times. You were given three times to deny me and you did that. Now I'm here. I'm going to give you three times to affirm your love for me. And each time, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. And then send him also and then when Jesus ascends to heaven and they wait and they're obedient, they wait till Pentecost, you know, 40 days later, the Spirit comes upon them. The same Peter who just a few weeks earlier was denying Christ that even knew him because he was afraid is the Peter who's now standing in front of a crowd of thousands of people preaching the gospel, accusing the Jews of their um, putting Christ to death and speaking in tongues and showing this miraculous thing. And people said, uh, I mean, are these apostles drunk? And he said, these men are not drunk as you suppose because it's early. I mean, maybe knowing these guys, if it was later. But it's, it's, it's early in the morning. Let me tell you what's happening. This is the prophecy of Joel. And he just preaches this amazing sermon and, you know, 3,000 people get converted. This is Peter. And so we are all Simon Peters. We all vacillate in our relationship with Christ in some way, of who we were before Christ and who we are in Christ. And I don't just mean that in a trite way. Oh, we're all Simon Peters, so it's okay if you fall into sin. It was never okay. He, he grieved deeply over his sin. It was an aspect of his life that he didn't want. And yet we see throughout his life and then throughout church history that he, he grows into who Jesus said he would be, and that is the rock. To the point that, even though he has his little dip here of hypocrisy, Paul confronts him. The implication is he repents of that. Then by the time he's writing 1 Peter, 2 Peter in his old age, he is affirming all of those things that Paul said as well. And what we know from church history is that when he died, they wanted to crucify him. And he said, I'm not worthy to die in the same way that my Savior died. And he asked to be crucified upside down, which they did. This, this is the rock. He becomes who he is. And I think for all of us, we need to live our lives that way, right? That we need to remember this is who we were before Christ. But now we're someone new in Christ. And our whole life is about growing into who we are. And we are called Christians. We are we are followers of Christ. We need to cling to his teachings. We need to cling to his person, his work, what he did for us, and the person of who he is to us. And we will do that more and more. And yes, we're going to fall short, and we're going to make mistakes, and we're going to slip up, but 
We never give up. We have the Spirit the same way Peter did Pentecost in us, leading us into who we are. And so now when Peter tells us in this epistle to keep your witness pure before a watching world, he knows what that looks like. He knows how difficult that is because he himself had an opportunity and blew it when he denied Christ. And when Peter tells us that God knows us better than we know ourselves, it's because he has first-hand experience with the Savior who gave him a name that he didn't even know that that identity was his, but Jesus did. And when he tells us to be ready with the defense for our hope in Christ, he knows what the consequence of that is when he tells us to do that. And when he warns us that the devil is prowling around, he knows how quickly Satan's agenda can become your agenda. And so this is the writer. Let's move on to our second thought today. The, the recipients, who are the people that receive this letter? Well, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to a specific group of people, but the letter is, is so well-crafted and dealing with such pertinent issues that it applies really to all believers. It's kind of a lesser to the greater. If it applies to people in this type of difficulty, how much more does it apply to people that aren't in that kind of difficulty? If, you're expect, if this is the Christian standard, even when you're being persecuted and scattered and suffering, then, well, when things are going well, we should do, at the very least be able to do what Peter says in this epistle. And so he's writing it to elect exiles. Now, this concept of election and what that means, we're going to dig into next week because in the very next verse, he starts talking about the predestination of God and the foreknowledge of God. And you're like, wow, okay. <laughs> I guess we're off to the races already. Um, and right here in the first verse, not just exiles, elect exiles, the called out ones, the chosen ones. You have been chosen to be in exile. You are in exile, but you're chosen by Christ. An exile is a person that has been forced from their home. Not, a person who, not, not just an immigrant who leaves their home, but somebody who's actually been forced from their home. That's what an exile is. And that's, that's who these people were. They were scattered in the dispersion even though the Greek word is diaspora, it's not referring to what historians call the diaspora, which is the, the scattering of um, the Jews after 70 AD. The dispersion is specifically the scattering of Christians that happened because of waves of persecution. And so he's writing to Christians who used to live in one place, but now they live in another place and they can't go back because they fear for their lives. And so by extension, this can apply in a metaphorical way to all of us who are not at our home right now. We want to be in heaven, but we are strangers on earth, is what he calls us. In chapter 2, verse 11, he will say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, you know, refugees, immigrants, and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So he's writing to Gentiles, but... You're not Gentiles, you're exiles. You've been kicked out of the Gentile world. And so among the other Gentiles, the people really are unbelievers. Keep your conduct pure. And he calls us refugees. We're away from our heavenly home, but we have this travel guide of what to do. Some of you know my hobby slash mental illness um, <laughs> of my, one, my obsession with one-bag travel. When I travel, I like to travel one bag, no matter how long I go for. I mean, I, I lived abroad for six months with just one bag, and 
don't worry, I wash my clothes. Um, but there's a whole online community of, of people with our problem. And <laughs> they have YouTube videos. This is the lightest weight, you know, microfiber towel that you can use, you know. And this is, um, instead of taking toothpaste, you can now get toothpaste pills, you know, little tablets that you, they work, okay? And they're not liquid, so you don't have to have, so you can go entirely liquid-free. It's really fascinating. You can ask me about it if you want, um, <laughs> if you have many hours. And, you know, it's the, this brand and that brand and this bag is best and this toiletry thing is best and these socks you don't even have to wash because they're merino wool and all this kind of thing. And it's, it's helpful to hear from other people who have been through it and, and they can say, listen, I lived in three months with just this bag and this is what I took. And you're like, ooh, cool, I'm going to try that and buy this product. And, and this is what... This is what First Peter is. It's that YouTube clip of, hey, listen, this is the traveling I did. This is the adventure I went to. It was dangerous. It was difficult. But this is what you need to pack. This is how you need to think. This is how you need to behave. Here's a, here's a travel tip for you. And he gives us lots of these tips. One of them is to submit to local authorities so you don't get in trouble. Treat them with respect. Chapter 2, verse 13. He gives us a tip regarding our baggage found in uh, chapter 5 verse 7 cast your anxieties on him for he cares for you you know he gives us um, uh, tips about keeping your final destination in mind chapter 1 verse 13 set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ he, he tells us about the international law of love that's going to help you in any culture in chapter 4 verse 8 in chapter 5 verse 8 he warns us about local dangers and wildlife there is a devil out there prowling like a lion out to kill you you know so the whole letter is packed with the sage wisdom of one who's been through the difficulties of life and he's going to teach us how to do it he's even got a whole section in there on marriage which i love is coming from an apostle who was actually married and he talks about the fiery trial although i don't think it's the same thing but anyway we'll see when we get closer and the fiery trials that people are in so these are the recipients but the question is, why does he keep telling them to be careful of these things and not panic and all these things? Well, this brings us to the reason for the epistle. So we've looked at the writer and the recipients. What's the reason? Well, he calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. So this dispersion, um, so this letter is written in about 63 AD. is kind of a good guess around there. And that's around about, the, well, 63, 64. It's around about the time where Nero became the emperor and Nero was a crazy person um, and paranoid and a pyromaniac and hated Christians. And so, you know, how there's that old saying that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. So that's based on eyewitness accounts that while his city was burning down, he was practicing his violin like he didn't even care. And some thought that Nero was the one that commissioned the starting of those fires because... Uh, he wanted a scapegoat. He wanted to blame someone and turn the city against the Christians. And so he started the rumor that the Christians started that fire that burnt down Rome. And so people hated the Christians and Nero hated the Christians. And so they were marginalized and they were exiled. And we look at this and we think, like, why would God do that? Especially those people at the time. When in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, don't be surprised at this fiery trial as if something strange were happening to you. No, this is, this is God's design. You kind of think, like, why would God want his church to suffer? But now, with all those years of church history, we can look back and see, well, what, what happened? All of these Christians in this very centralized spot in the world 
loved each other and loved meeting together and everything was going well for them and why would they ever spread anywhere else? And then the persecution started in Nero and they, this little holy huddle of Christians got scattered to every nook and cranny of the known world. And wherever they went, they took the gospel and they evangelized and they planted churches. And now you've got churches in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Rome. Like a fox in the hen house, Nero's persecution scattered Christians all over to go and lay their gospel eggs, as it were. So this letter, Peter's doing what Jesus told him to, tend my sheep. And he doesn't shy away from the fact that there's going to be suffering. In fact, the, the root word for suffer appears in this epistle in five chapters 17 times he's going to talk about suffering. This is, this is not the dentist who says, oh, don't worry, it's not going to hurt. And then you're like, ah, he lies. This is the dentist to say, this is going to hurt. I want you to not flinch. That helps you. Okay, it's going to hurt. Don't flinch. Don't move. That's what Peter's saying here. He's not saying, oh, you're a Christian. Yay, everything's wonderful now. No, he says, oh, you're a Christian? This is going to hurt. Don't flinch. Stand firm. Don't panic. Keep calm and carry on. So Peter's message is to prepare us, exiles on earth, for the right reaction. And the right reaction is don't panic. You know, I always remember the... So I love traveling, and I, I kind of remember the moment when I realized that I could, I could travel the world. The first time I ever traveled was, I was 16 years old, and I was in Argentina. I was an exchange student with Rotary Exchange, and I was gonna meet some students that were gonna take a, a bus ride to go and see the Iguazu Falls up in the border of uh, Brazil and Paraguay and Argentina. It was many, many hours away. And so my family wasn't going to, my host family wasn't going to come with me. It was during school time. So they helped me. They were like, you need to catch this bus to this city. And that's where you're going to meet the other students. And then you're all going to catch a bus together. So I had my little instructions. And so they took me to the bus station and they told me what to do or whatever. And I got on the bus and they said, it's about an hour. And every time the bus stops, you check the sign and this is what it's going to say. And then you get off at that sign and the, the other students will be waiting there. So I'm on the bus and... I'm checking every single sign. I know it's only been five minutes, but you never know. I know it's only been 15 minutes. They said an hour. You never know. And then an hour comes, and it's not, it's not the right city. And then an hour and 15 minutes comes. It's not the right city. And then two hours comes, and I still haven't seen the right city. And so at some point, I'm, I'm starting to panic. And I, I show the name of the city to people on the bus, and they're all looking confused, confused. One of them takes it. I mean, I don't speak any Spanish at this point, so he goes to the bus driver, they talk, suddenly the, the bus stops, the bus driver's all upset, no, 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 opens the doors, get off, and kicks me off the bus. So I'm like, okay, I don't know what I did wrong, but I've been driving for two hours, and the bus driver seemed upset about that. Maybe I didn't pay enough, or I don't know, whatever. So, so I get off the bus, I'm in this tiny little town, I, have, I don't speak Spanish, I'm 16 years old, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no, I'm, a, I'm somewhere in South America at this point. And I sat down on this bench outside this little cafe and I started to cry. 
And I'm like, you know, here I am, this 16-year-old man, but I'm crying. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I, I had no clue what to do next. And so I just went inside and bought a Coke. I could say that, una Coca, por favor. And then, you know, pay you a little peso. And I sat outside and I drank my Coke and I just composed myself. And I just kept thinking, like, don't panic. Don't panic. And I, this is what I remember thinking. I'm not going to end up a homeless 16-year-old kid in South America. I, at some point, I'm going to be back home and we'll be able to laugh about this. What I should have thought is, I'll one day be able to use this as a sermon illustration. This is fantastic. But I was like, at some point in my life, I will be sitting in my living room with my parents. Rotary's not going to just leave me here. I mean, I can find a police station. It's like, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but this is not the end of my life. And I just kept focusing on that idea of like, one day everything's going to be fine. I'm going to be back with my parents in my living room. And I drank my Coke, and then it kind of came to me like, okay, we'll go inside and show them the city and get a map and ask for help and try to, you know, use hand signals. And sure enough, they took me to the bus station. I had money with me, but they paid for my bus ticket because they felt so sorry for me. I had, you know, my mascara had run. And um, (laughs) they could tell I'd been crying. And um, they put me on the right bus and they told me, you know, they, told, they spoke to the bus driver and when I got there, the bus driver told me to go off and they were the students, they'd been waiting for me. Everything worked out, f- I mean, I'm here, so everything worked out fine. And I just remember thinking, okay, that is as scary as it can get. 16-year-olds don't speak the language, in the middle of absolute nowhere on a foreign continent, and I survived. And the reason I had that phrase in my mind, don't panic, and remember, I wasn't a believer at this point. I wasn't reading my Bible every day. You know what I was reading? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. It's a satirical science fiction book. And in it, this is what he writes about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He says this. Um, Despite its many glaring and occasionally fatal inaccuracies, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the better of two options of travel guide. And it has outsold the Encyclopedia Galactica for two reasons. One, it's slightly cheaper. And two, it has the words don't panic on the cover in large friendly letters. And it is widely known among planet hoppers that the two most important rules for intergalactic travel is one, don't panic, and two, always pack a towel. And, and I, I always, to this day, whenever I think, oh, they'll have towels in the hotel, I always think back to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Don't panic and pack a towel. And so I'm still looking one day to find a towel that says, don't panic on it. And, um, but, and I just remembered that in that moment, like that weird, it's just, it was a story I had read. I really loved the Hitchhiker's Guide. And in that moment, I was like, don't panic. Just calm down. Everything's going to be fine. Now, we, we don't need a satirical, you know, comical science fiction novel to give us hope. That's nothing. We have the word of God. We have the Word of God that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we have an author here writing us a letter about what it's like to live in a foreign environment where you don't fit in, where you don't know what's coming, where you may be extremely afraid. And his basic message is, don't panic. Keep calm. Carry on. This is what you need to do. This is how you love your wife. This is how you view the government. This is how you worship. This is how you serve in church. This is what you need to know about who God is and how he has a plan for your life. And he keeps reminding you that 
don't worry, in the end, it's all going to be fine. One day you're going to be in the heavenlies with this imperishable inheritance with your Savior. So no matter what's happening, you know that's how it's going to end up. It's just a matter of what has to happen until you get there. So sit down, sip your Coke, take a deep breath, keep calm, carry on. So these are things that we can expect from First Peter as we go through the series. What does the Bible say about fashion, government, women's lib, the doctrine of election, prophecy, work, apologetics, Satan, angels, prayer, serving in the church, and suffering in this life? The answers to all of those questions and many more are found in First Peter. And you might be thinking, that's a lot to take in from one epistle. Don't panic. Keep calm. Carry on coming to church, starting with next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the reminder in your word that no matter what happens in our world, what's happening in our personal lives, or on a national level, or an international level, that you hold the world in your hands, that you have written the end from the beginning that you have given us instructions and guidance of how to please you, how to live lives that are overcoming and lives that are not anxious, racked with fear and anxiety, but lives that are confident and calm. We pray, Lord, that as over the weeks to come, we will learn what you expect of us in these various capacities that we would obey in a joyful way that gives you glory and benefits us and society. We pray these things because Jesus Christ died for us on the cross and gave us his righteousness that we can be born again to a living hope. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus. Amen.